So this afternoon, uh, we are looking again at the resurrection. Uh, and this afternoon, our theme is resurrection hope. Resurrection hope. And we're going to begin, this isn't where we're going to spend our time, but I want us to begin uh, with a verse in 1 Peter chapter 1, and it's verse 3. So why don't you turn there, 1 Peter 1, verse 3. I'll just give you a moment to find it. In fact, while you're looking for it, let me just, let's pray for us as we do this. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again that your word is so full of riches for our souls to feed upon. Lord, we thank you for this theme of resurrection that runs from cover to cover in your great book, the Bible. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've shown us so far. We thank you, though, that there is much more for us to explore. We ask that you would be with us now. Oh, Lord, be with us by your spirit. Give us understanding as we open your word again. And Lord, would you be at work in both our heads and our hearts, helping us, Lord, to grasp these things in a deeper way. May they, Lord, touch our hearts deeply. Lord, give us faith to believe. Give us hope in the promises that will lay before us. Give us joy because of all that you have promised to us. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. So, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now in this one verse, Peter sums up the very essence of our two sessions today, the very essence of the two things we're looking at today. Because he says that two things have been mercifully given to us by God through the resurrection of Jesus. So there's two gifts. One of them is fulfilled in the past and one of them is waiting to be fulfilled in the future. And um, I have got a special treat today, two presents. Um, and I found out on the way in that this is uh, particularly, uh, what's the word? Maybe Jemima sees this quite often. The combination of the Christmas wrapping and the birthday wrapping, apparently Jemima's birthday is on Christmas Day. So there, it's just a coincidence. Two presents. Uh, who wants to open the first present? Jemima wants to open the first present, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Lower your expectations. <laughs> oh yeah, sorry, you've got to crack that open. It's, good, it's a good bit of paper. Show us what you got. Spiritual resurrection, new birth. Ooh. There we go, gift number one. I think you've done well. That's a good gift to get, really. I mean, that's, yes. that's incomparably good. Thank you very much. Just, uh, yeah, toss the rubbish. So, gift number one, Peter mentions, new birth, spiritual resurrection, what we looked at this morning. I kind of feel like someone else should do it in a minute. Yeah, sorry, Jemima. You can take this home later on if you like. There you go. <laughs> so this first gift we gain from Christ's resurrection, that's what Peter's talking about, but it's not all that we gain. Peter says at the same time that we're given a second gift. So who else wants to open the second one? Sanctuary, yep, excellent, come on up. Uh, let, me, let me just sort of prop that there. 
probably can't see that very well. Okay, this one's a bit bigger. Ignore what's written on the box. It's the kind of thing I get excited about. It's just like an order for tea, but it's not what's inside. Yeah, that, that, yeah, ignore that. Oh, look at that. All right, what have we got there? A living hope. A living hope. Excellent. Thank you very much for opening that for us. Ooh! Ah, oh, you are awake. Excellent. There we go. So, it's an interesting pair, isn't it? Peter said, talking about here, spiritual resurrection, the new birth. That's one gift that comes because of Christ's resurrection. And then he talks about this thing called a living hope. Now, I think that one has fallen over, but it sounds impressive. It sounds very tangible it's something for now it's ours already but hope seems i think less impressive and it seems a lot less tangible what is this thing called hope now commonly people think and speak of hope as being uh, nothing more really than just wishful thinking i hope it won't rain i hope i'll stay covid free this weekend i hope the war in ukraine won't keep escalating and when we talk about hope in that way, we're talking about things that we'd like to have happen, but for which we've got no special confidence that it will happen and no way of controlling whether it will happen for ourselves. We're hoping for things we might not get. But the Bible talks about hope as being something tangible, solid and sure. Hope that you can touch, something that hasn't happened yet, but which will certainly happen in the future at just the right time. And it's something for which we've already had a down payment and a guarantee. So have a look again at Peter's words. What's the down payment and guarantee of this future hope? Any guesses? The resurrection. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> Jesus' resurrection, hence the picture on the front, is the guarantee that we now possess this living hope. It is ours. Whatever it is that awaits us in this final box of future hope, it's already sure and certain. It's a living hope because Jesus rose. So the Christian's idea of hope then is so different to what the world thinks about when it talks about hope. Um, it's the difference between standing in the desert on your own and just hoping against hope that you might find food and water just possibly somewhere compared to being here on the life weekend, walking into the kitchen, seeing John and Angie preparing a lavish meal with your name right there on the seating plan for dinner. Your hope for food in the desert is a desperate, unlikely hope against hope. You're hoping for food, but you don't have anything objective to put your hope in. Whereas hoping for a meal tonight is not just wishful thinking, and hoping in something intangible, it's hoping in objective food that's been promised and paid for. It's hoping in objective cooks who you've already seen at work for you, making your dinner. It's a sure and certain hope that there will be dinner for you tonight. 
But here, of course, Peter's not just promising us dinner. What then is this future gift that awaits us one day because of Christ's past resurrection? Who wants to open the final box? Why not? Why not? <laughs> That's the kind of enthusiasm I'm looking for right there. <laughs> Go for it. Drum roll. There it is. Physical resurrection, a new body. Excellent. Thank you very much, David. That's brilliant. Our own future physical resurrection. Christ's own past resurrection is the pledge and the promise of our future resurrection. So let me tell you, you have a strong and a confident hope of dinner tonight. Because you can go and see it already being cooked. But surer by far is the certain living hope that God has given to you because Christ rose from the dead. That you too will one day rise physically from the dead. Christ's own resurrection is the proof of that. It's as good as in your hands already. But what if we doubt it? What if, although we believe Jesus rose from the dead, what if just one of our abiding fears that we cannot shift is that we ourselves perhaps won't be raised after we die? We all wrestle, I think, uh, in different ways with fears about death. I don't think any of us are entirely fear-free when it comes to thinking about our death. Uh, perhaps especially when we're unwell, maybe when we're weighed down with guilt, Maybe particularly just when, if we're the sort of person that lies awake at 3 a.m. at night. Um, that tends to be when these crazy worries and questions go through our minds, isn't it? Is it possible to be a Christian, to trust in Christ as your saviour here today, and yet perhaps, not, yet perhaps not one day truly be raised to new resurrection life? Is that fear, in even just the smallest way, justified? It's worth asking the question. And it's a question that Paul addresses head on in 1 Corinthians 15. And so that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time this afternoon. Um, we're going to look at it under two headings. So turn, do turn to 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to examine this under two headings. The first one is where Christ goes, we go. And the second one will be what Christ is like, we will be like. So first of all, where Christ goes, we go. And let me read just the first few verses starting in verse 1. Paul writes, Now I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
So here Paul begins by reminding the Corinthians of the absolute heart of the good news that they have heard and believe. Those matters of absolute first importance that we started out with last night, that Christ died, that he was buried, and that he rose on the third day, and that then he appeared, he says, to over 500 different eyewitnesses. At the heart of the message of the gospel is this historical reality that Christ was resurrected, that Jesus is alive. If you deny that, you're not a Christian. But let's assume we do believe Christ rose. Let's assume that we've all put our trust in him as our saviour and king. How does the Son of God, rising from the dead, how can that give us such a sure and certain hope that little, old, weak and feeble you and me will one day be physically raised as well. I don't know about you, but it, it seems at least more believable, easier to believe that the Son of God, when he goes down into the grave, could rise physically again because he's God. But the fear comes in, I think, because we think, but what about me? I'm not, I'm not the Son of God. I, I don't have the power to raise myself from the dead. How can I know for sure that I'll be raised? On the face of it, it just seems a lot less likely. We'll have a look at that now down at verse 12, where Paul begins to give us his answer. In verse 12, he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now here's what was going on in Corinth. There were some people in the church who did believe in Christ's resurrection, but who didn't believe in the Christian's future resurrection. Now, actually, they did believe that when you died, you would go to be with Jesus, but they didn't believe that that would be a physical, touchable, embodied future. And I wonder, have a think about it, how do you tend to Im imagine and envisage your future with Jesus? How do you tend to think about your future existence with Jesus? For a whole variety of reasons, some of us have only ever imagined a kind of floaty, intangible, spiritually fluffy life in heaven with Jesus. Perhaps because we've never been taught about our true biblical future. Perhaps because we've seen too many pictures of heaven being about sitting on a floaty cloud with a harp. Or just because we, just, we haven't given it proper attention. But I can tell you why some of the Corinthians didn't believe in a physical resurrection for themselves. It was because they thought that the physical was inferior to the spiritual. And in fact, that's like a lot of uh, the world's man-made religions. Have you ever noticed that? So many of the religions of the world have a low view of physical things. And they imagine that real enlightenment, real salvation, I guess, in a sense, their idea of heaven it is about transcending and escaping our human bodies. They don't think that bodies matter very much. Which incidentally for the Corinthians is why some of them were happy as Christians to keep on sleeping with prostitutes, while others who were married decided to stop having sex with their spouse because they thought that was somehow unspiritual because it was so physical. Both of those errors were coming from the same root. They had a low view of the human body. They had a low view of the physical world. But God does not have a low view of human bodies. He, he doesn't have a low view of your body. In fact, he has an immeasurably high view of your body. He made it. He delights in it. 
Even now, while it's full of flaws and imperfections, your body is unbelievably valuable. And if you're a Christian, he's honoured your physical body beyond all measure. Uh, we were hearing about it this morning, weren't we? Both by making it a temple of the Holy Spirit and now by giving your body the promise that one day it will be raised from the grave. Your body has an eternal hope and an eternal future. Matter matters. Bodies matter. Your body, the one you're wearing right now, whether you're impressed with it or not, really matters. And God has demonstrated that beyond question by raising Jesus's body physically from the dead. Okay, so fair enough on that. That's all very encouraging for how we think about our bodies here and now. But let's backtrack again. Let's ask the question, what's the harm in still doubting or at least questioning the idea that our bodies will one day be literally raised? What if that just still seems a bit far-fetched to us? Does it matter whether or not that happens? Well, Paul says here in verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. Or to paraphrase it, he's saying, if Christians aren't going to one day be physically raised, then not even Christ has been physically raised. And then verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if dead Christians, the dead, are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Now, um, let, let me tell you about an incident that happened in our house recently. Um, it was uh, a week or so ago, Lizzie came to me. She explained to me that our clothes error is beginning to sag. I don't know if anyone's had a clothes error long enough to experience this problem. I think it's a common fault. It's beginning to sag because of all the washing that we're hanging on it each day. Uh, so I decided to try and fix it. And uh, with manly DIY confidence, I moved straight in. Yes, 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 of course. Oh, I know exactly what the problem is and how I'm going to fix it. And so I reached down gently just to kind of, you know, bend. It's quite sensible, isn't it? Bend back into shape the, the, the leg that's looking a little bit bent as this tiny join which has clearly just spayed out a bit and in an instant the leg snaps and the whole area collapses and there is damp washing strewn forlornly across the kitchen floor and Lizzie is not looking that impressed with me she now has no error what was my defense I only broke one little piece but without that one little piece the whole error was broken and useless now, why do I mention this? Apart from a good life lesson for us, don't, don't, don't be too quick to fiddle with things. But actually, Paul is saying, just break or remove this one piece in the structure. Just remove our, our future physical resurrection from the table and the whole gospel and the whole of our hope of salvation of any kind comes completely crashing down in pieces. And that's because Jesus' resurrection and our future resurrection are seamlessly connected together uh, like a zipper. I meant to bring something that's got a good zip on it. Is anyone wearing a good zip? No? We're like zip-free. Oh. 
buttons aren't going to work for this. They're not as strong. Picture the zipper. If you've ever tried to pull apart a zip when it's done up and you try and pull it apart from the middle, it is nigh impossible because of the way that all those little teeth interlock with each other so seamlessly and tightly together. And if you do try and grab uh, one side of the zip and, uh, for instance, pull it to the ground, imagine I'm wearing my zipped up coat, grabbing one side here and I pull it down to the ground, the other side goes quickly down into the dirt with it. Deny your future resurrection, well, you're dragging into the dirt the idea that Christ has already been physically raised. But equally, pull from the other side upward, which is what Christ did when he rose from the grave, and the truth is your future resurrection is already a done deal. It's inevitable. You too must also one day be physically lifted up and raised. Because if you're a Christian, you and Christ have been irreversibly zipped together. You're in him and he is in you by his spirit. As it says in Romans 8 verse 11, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And so back to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he assures the Corinthians, verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then verse 22, he says, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So there's an order here, says Paul. Christ's resurrection had to come first, but when it did come, it was the first of many more to come. His was like the first ripened fruit of the harvest. We, we don't really get that thing these days, do we? Because you can go into a supermarket and pretty much find any fruit any time of the year. But uh, I guess maybe if you go into the greengrocers, you're dealing with much more fresh fruit. And there are times when you go in and you start to see, ah, oh, look, the strawberries have appeared or the blueberries or whatever it might be, the seasonal fruit. And the... the when you see the first strawberry appear in the greengrocers, you know that there's many more to come. That's, that's what Paul is alluding to here. Jesus's was the first ripened fruit of the harvest, proving that many other resurrections, including your resurrection and my resurrection, will one day inevitably follow. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but if you've sat in a car recently, which we all did yesterday, did you notice how it's only the front wheels of the car that are designed to steer and turn? If the back wheels are steering and turning, you've got a problem with your car. The back wheels are not meant to steer or set the direction, but wherever the front wheels decide to go, the back wheels always inevitably follow. Now Jesus has already, Jesus is like the front wheels. He has already steered along the route of death and resurrection. We haven't done so yet. We haven't physically done that yet, but we will do inevitably one day because where he has gone, we, like the back wheels of the car, will inevitably follow. That's the sure and certain living hope that God has given to every Christian by raising his son Jesus from the dead. So have no fear. Let not your heart be troubled. Where Jesus goes, we go. We will one day 
be raised. And all of that begs the question, was it who asked the question earlier in our Q&A about what's, what's it all look like? Was it Martha? Excellent, Martha. You were right on it. I can't remember how you phrased it, but I'll phrase it like this. What on earth will it be like? What will it be like? Well, second and final heading this afternoon, what, what Christ is like, we will be like. Let's have a think a bit more about this. Um, take a look at your own body for a moment. Uh, don't go looking at other people's. It gets a bit invasive, but look at your own. How much life do you think is left in your body right now? Perhaps your answer depends on how well you slept last night and how well you feel today. Perhaps it will depend on your age. Some of you are probably already thinking, well, I'm probably going to outlive Matt. <laughs> it's probably true. Some of us might be suffering with illness, short-term illness, long-term illness, and be even more keenly aware of how fragile our body is at present. Does anyone here feel like their present body has the potential to last forever. I'd be impressed if you did. You, would have, you must have slept really well if that's the case. And I think this is perhaps the second big reason why the Corinthians struggled to believe that their future with Jesus was going to, have, was going to be a physical experience as well as a spiritual one. It just raises so many practical, logistical questions about how it will work about why do we have to die first, about how could a human body last forever? And the question of what will my body be like? Perhaps they're thinking, we're thinking, I'm not too keen on keeping this one forever. I, you know, I'd quite like an upgrade. And yet I still want to be me. I don't want to be someone else. How's that all going to work? Well, what I love about the final section of 1 Corinthians 15 is that Paul is happy in to, get, to get into some of the nitty-gritty details in order to deepen our hope and our confidence of what's to come. Now, there's an awful lot in these verses. There are probably whole books written on this one chapter, and we can't explore it all. But, but here, I think, is the main big takeaway about this, from the second half of 1 Corinthians 15. It is that our bodies will be the same, yet different. Our bodies will be the same yet different. Uh, so let's have a look. Paul compares it to the planting of a seed. Verse 37. What you sow, he says, is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. Uh, if you've ever planted seeds, anyone like growing plants? Some people, yeah, excellent, Tim. Nice. I need some tips, actually, because I've got some, but I keep threatening their lives with either too much water or a lack of water. Uh, anyone ever planted seeds and grown from seed? Sim, you're just winning today. Well, Sim, you will know that what you expect to grow isn't just a copy of the little seed that you put in. So carrot seeds are not just like miniature carrots, although that would be kind of cool, but they're not. And full-grown carrots don't just look like overgrown seeds. But the carrot really does grow out of the seed. The DNA of the carrot comes from the seed. Verse 42, Paul says, so is it with the resurrection of the dead. Our new resurrection body will be different in significant ways to the old one. But that shouldn't be especially surprising to us because as Paul is showing us, it's what goes on in nature all of the time. Seeds are planted. They look one way when you put them in the ground. They, they effectively die 
there under the earth. And then what springs forth from that seed is something that looks very different, but it's still grown from the same seed. And it's nothing to worry about either, because as Paul points out, in, uh, God is actually quite an expert at this. He's quite experienced. Verses 38 to 41 remind us that in picking out the right body for the right plant or creature, God has got a whole lot of work experience here. He is an expert in giving plants and creatures the very bodies that they need. Sam Albury puts it like this. He says, look down at the creatures and look up at the heavens. There is a seemingly infinite number of bodies in this universe. There are more than 13,000 species of fern and 12,000 species of moss. This is something of an area of expertise for God. Do you really think he'll have trouble providing a resurrection body for you? Of course not. But what kind of differences are we talking about here? Are we, are we talking about a smaller nose or fuller hair or bigger feet? You know, maybe some of those, those are some of the things we're hoping for. Before Paul's focus isn't on the external appearance here. The thing he highlights is our resurrected body's incorruptibility. Their incorruptibility. Right now, our bodies are perishing and wasting away. Not just because of aging, but also because of the remaining effects of sin in this present world. And try as we might with fitness or health foods or beauty products, we can't ultimately halt our present body's decay. Sooner or later, our bodies will die. And then they'll be sown into the ground. But listen to how, how different our resurrection bodies will be. Look at verse 42. Paul writes, what is sown, what's put into the ground, what dies, is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonour. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And I find that last bit especially fascinating, just kind of grabs my attention because we often contrast body and spirit. But here, Paul's combining the two of them. He's saying our resurrection body, it combines the two. We will have a spiritual body. We will be supernaturally physical. We'll be supernaturally physical. So do you see then with Paul's big long description there, how superior our resurrection bodies will be? They'll be imperishable, glorified, powerful, and supernatural our physical bodies aren't any of those things right now, however healthy or frail we might feel today. And then Paul fleshes out the details quite a bit more by reminding us that our future bodies will in fact share in all the imperishable traits of Jesus's resurrection body. Verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, talking about how we right now we look like Adam, just a regular human being, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, talking about the resurrected Jesus. So we, one day we will have bodies like the resurrected body of Jesus. So think a moment about Jesus's resurrection body. Think about when you see him at the end of the Gospels or in the beginning of Acts. He was, oh, let me ask, because this is save us dozing off. Tell me, throw out some facts. What do we know about Jesus' resurrection body? 
from uh, end of the Gospels or beginning of Acts? You can walk through doors. You can walk through doors, yeah. That's cool. Yep. Could eat fish, yes. And we're going to assume not just fish, in case you don't like fish, but he could eat fish, yeah. Anything else? Yeah, still look like him. How do we know he still look like him? Oh, yeah, there you go. Yes, yes, isn't that, in isn't that interesting? There were times, certainly when they recognised him, picture them... Uh, out on the boat, and is it Peter, I think, looks across, or one of them looks across back at the beach and says, oh, well, look, that, that, that's Jesus, isn't it? And then they jump in the water and they go and eat the fish, have a nice breakfast with him, which doesn't just fall through him like it would do a, a ghost. He's enjoying the breakfast with them. But there are other times when they don't recognise him. Um, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, uh, Jesus comes and walks with them, but they don't see who he is. And... Um, is it, yeah, Mary in the garden. She turns and she sees this person she thinks is the gardener, but actually it's the risen Jesus. So there's all sorts of things there. There are some, some similarities to what he was like before he was crucified and then rose. And there are also some big differences. And, and he didn't seem bound to normal physical limitations either, as uh, some, was it Tom said. He could pass through locked doors. He could appear and disappear. Sam Albury again helpfully writes, So I will be recognisably and authentically me, but I will be a transformed me. And I take it this transformation will be a more authentic me than I am now. I will be more fully myself than I have ever been. And I, I really love this fact that ultimately we're destined not just for a physically resurrected life in a physically resurrected place. You know that heaven is not just about ghosts and vapour, but ultimately it's about new bodies in a new creation, a new earth with Jesus there with us physically. I love this idea that it'll also be a life even more real and physical than our life is right now on earth. Even more real even more tangible than now. And um, I don't know of any writers who've captured this idea uh, more uh, clearly and creatively than C.S. Lewis. In the last battle, you've got Lucy at the end realizing that the new Narnia is even more real than the old one. But it's in another of his books. I wonder if anyone's read this one. It's called The Great Divorce. Anyone read The Great Divorce? It's a lesser known book. He explores the fact that we'll actually need new glorified resurrection bodies in order to truly enjoy the, the, the unimaginable pleasures of a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, and so in it, he tells this story of a busload of unresurrected earthly people taking a day trip to heaven. And uh, he describes how everything there in heaven, the, the grass and the rocks, the trees and the water are actually more solid, not less solid, than things in our present world. And so to these unresurrected visitors, it's all heavy and hard like diamonds. The main character finds that he can't pluck a flower or pick up a leaf. When he stands on the grass, it's almost too physical, it's too real, it's sharp and hard beneath his transparent and ghostly feet. 
And the point that C.S. Lewis makes is that they had all thought of our present world as the real one, the one with substance, while thinking of heaven as the less substantial spirit world. But it turns out they had it backwards. Heaven was the land of substance, earth the land of shadow. And so to fit into heaven, they had to become not less solid, but more. They had to move from being phantoms to having real weight and substance. They need new hearts and new bodies if they're to enjoy so real an existence, which is essentially what Paul tells us in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. We need that imperishable resurrection body. But as we said earlier, God already knows that we need it. And just as he gave one to Christ, he will not hold back from giving one of those resurrection bodies to every single believer on the last day. So read, with me, read along with me, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the sure and certain living hope that has been given to us through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now, just before we finish, let me draw out two final important implications of what we've just seen. Firstly, much of the fullness that we long for in this life is still to come. We shouldn't expect our best life now. Much of what God has promised to us is not yet, but still to come. Still to come when Jesus returns. Yes, there is much that we enjoy as Christians right now. We enjoy the forgiveness of sins, a relationship with the God who made us, God's spirit dwelling within us being a part of the people of God with all of the rich relationships and friendships that go with that. But right now, this world and these bodies are still ravaged by sin and decay. Death has lost its power and sting, but we still have to go through it. It's not yet been swallowed up entirely. And so for now, we, we just cherish, we must cherish the promise that we will one day share in Christ's glory. Secondly, what we do for the Lord now will bear fruit that lasts forever. Our future resurrection, the hope of it, ought to empower and encourage us even now to endure hardship and struggle against sin. It ought to give purpose to our daily endeavours for God. Hence, Paul finishes all that he has to say on the resurrection, this, this glorious chapter that we've just kind of raced through, Here's how he finishes it with these words of exhortation, verse 58. Therefore, in light of all that we just heard, 
Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. Let's pray.